From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Cookbooks continue to sell really well. Mm -hmm. There is something, there's something about them that people find compelling, that's more compelling than an online recipe. Otherwise, they would just die out. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Maria Zizka. Now, even if you haven't heard the name Maria Zizka before, chances are you've been exposed to her work. While she's just released her first solo cookbook, she's contributed to nearly a dozen others, from top chefs like Yota Motolenghi, Suzanne Goen, and Jessica Koslow. And just last year, Forbes named her one of the 30 most influential people in food and drink under 30. And as we'll learn today, it all began with a serendipitous writing opportunity while in college. And her latest, the first solo cookbook of hers, is The Newlywed Table, a cookbook to start your life together. And I had the chance to try some of these recipes from The Newlywed Table at Maria Ziska's book launch party. And let me tell you, the chocolate toast is so simple and somehow so delectable. In today's show, we're talking with Maria about what led her from thinking she'd be a doctor to a culinary program in Italy and a career in cookbook writing, about her approach to co-writing cookbooks with different chefs, and what books and authors have inspired her. Plus, we've got two recipes from the newlywed table, the braised chicken legs with green olives and a lime gremolata, and a summer on a plate salad. And of course, it's not salt and spine if there's not a game. So stick around at the end as we play a newlywed-themed game with Maria. Later in today's show, we're also chatting with the food-obsessed Chicago couple behind the popular Cooking the Books blog about the cookbooks they've been working through. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Maria Zizka joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Maria. How are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Oh, I'm honored to be here. We're so glad to have you. And we're here to talk about your cookbook, your first solo cookbook, yes. although you've worked on many cookbooks, yes. The Newlywed Table. So we'll we'll come back to it. We'll come back to your new book in a second. But I want to start by talking a little bit about how you got into this career. Mm-hmm. So you actually, you grew up in California, right? I was actually born in Berkeley, where you I live born now. born in Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. And so you've spent most of your life in the Bay Area. I, think I you did. You went to college here I went well. to college here. I didn't think I would go to Berkeley. Um, right. It always felt so close to home, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was where my parents wanted me to go. So I was thinking that I would travel somewhere really far <laughs> instead. Sure. Yep. But um, but I ended up there and it, it was the perfect school for me. And, and now I have a lot of Cal pride. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes it makes sense to stay in your backyard. Did food um, or you know, culinary arts of any sort play a role in your childhood? I know we'll, we'll get to later on in, in yeah. college and so forth. But as you were growing up, what was food like for you? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, my Both my parents worked and they they cooked, but it was not a huge part of their lives. Okay. Um, still really isn't. And so I was fascinated with cookbooks as a really young girl. Really? I just loved them. I asked for them for every birthday, every holiday gift. All I wanted were cookbooks. When you were quite young. When I was just learning to read. Okay. I only wanted to read cookbooks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was a quirky little kid, I think. (laughs) 
And um, and my parents, you know, they have pictures of me leading cooking shows for my stuffed animals. Right. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> so I was I was obsessed from a really young age, and I just sort of made big messes in the kitchen. My parents were really patient, and they uh-huh. let me just mix flour and water and see what happened. Yes. Um, and I kind of taught myself to cook that way. Okay. Do you remember any of those early cookbooks? Ooh, I remember watching a lot of um cooking shows, uh-huh. and right. it was in the the era when they were very educational. Yes. Um, and so I watched... Pre-game show. A pre-game show, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I watched a lot of um, cooking shows like Jacques Pepin and um, and even I think Ina Garden w- yeah. was just starting. Right. And, and that, and I learned a lot from that as well. Yeah. So you're, you're sort of teaching yourself to cook as a child <laughs> yeah. almost just by yeah. experimenting. Did you have like, um, when did you actually start to cook? I mean, you said your parents let you experiment, but... You know, by the time you're in high school, are you actually really cooking? Yes. Seriously? Yeah. My um my mom planned the sweetest sweet sixteen birthday party for me where okay. we went to uh Sur La Taub uh-huh. and had a cooking class. And I, yes. I planned the whole menu. Um I believe it was uh stuffed chicken breast. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I would probably I don't think I've made since then. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it by a, it had its moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was right in that time. Um, but by then I was, yeah, I was cooking more seriously, I would say. Okay. And so then you go to college, you go to Cal, you mm-hmm. go to Berkeley, and you're still sort of interested in food. And then there's this sort of moment that happens mm-hmm. where I think your boyfriend at the time, right? now your husband, yes. and you end up writing a column for the student newspaper yes. on cooking. Is that right? How did that sort of <laughs> yeah. take place? It was a weekly column. And yeah, the Daily Cal is, you know, a really great student newspaper. Mm-hmm. And they put out um, a notice that they were looking for a new columnist. And my major was biology. So okay. I didn't think there was any way I would be qualified to write that column. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, my boyfriend at the time, Graham, was saying to me, you should really apply and you should you should write about cooking and write recipes for the column. And I, I guess I just, you know, I had never published anything before and didn't really feel like I could do it on my own. But he said, I'll co-author it with you. Let's okay. do it together. And that made me feel like, okay, well, maybe I could do it with him. Right. So we started writing it and we did it, yeah, for the whole school year, once a week. Okay. Um, we did like recipe videos. We even wow. stepped into some uh, restaurant reviewing. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Badly, I think. In Berkeley, <laughs> are you like fun. going to Chez Panisse or something? <laughs> no, we giving didn't. Giving bad review. <laughs> Didn't have any budget. <laughs> sure. Fair. <laughs> That's fair. So you're sort of starting to like move into food writing then. Mm-hmm. When did you realize this was something you wanted to do professionally? Was it around that time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if there was one moment or if it was just sort of building all along. My dad is an immigrant. And so okay. I, it was always kind of drilled into me that I needed to have a very stable career and, you know, make money and, and support myself and my family. So I just didn't even really think that it was even possible for me to do this. To be a food writer. You know, that felt like too crazy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And and my parents knew that I was good at science. Um, and so the plan was for me to become a doctor. Okay. And I did all the the pre-med requirements at Cal, even through college, I thought, okay, I'm gonna apply to medical school, become a doctor, and that was gonna be like a very respectable job. Sure. Um 
And I think about halfway through college, once we started writing that column, it was just building inside of me and, and I was terrified to take that leap. Like that felt the thing that scared me most was to pursue something in a career in food. Yeah. And I think that is actually how I knew that it was the right choice is because it was the thing that made my heart just pound. Yeah. And it still does. You know, I'm still just as enthralled and I'm, feel very lucky that I've been able to turn it into a career. That's so interesting. How did you do that then? So you, you <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine you're in, you're, you know, ne- nearing the end of your time in college. Mm-hmm. You're sort of having this feeling of like, should mm-hmm. I make this leap? Should I do this thing that's sort of terrifying, but so exhilarating? Right. I think you moved to New York. Is that right? Yes. My first job was in New York. It was, a, it was an internship and I was working okay. with Slow Food uh-huh. in their U.S. office in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Um, and I was writing, they have, you know, the arc of taste and it has all of these kind of endangered varieties of fruits and vegetables that okay. people aren't growing anymore. So I was writing descriptions of apples that once grew in, you know, what's now Manhattan. Right. And one day the founder of Slow Food, Carlo Petrini, came to the office and he lives in Italy and he came for meetings, I think. And he had a, a translator with him and the translator and I started talking and I was asking him you know, what, what he does, where he lives. And he said he's, he is a student at this university in Italy. Okay. And he started telling me about his classes and they were like beer tasting, uh-huh. um, and cheese making, right. um, and the history of, of cookbooks. And, and it sounded like, like Hogwarts, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> this is a dream that can't be real. Right. Um, but I knew that that sounded like the right program for me. And he said he was an undergrad, but he said, they've just started this graduate program. Uh-huh. You can go and do a master's. So I moved back to Berkeley and I started taking Italian language classes. Okay. And I studied for a year and I, I also started a catering company, very small, but I saved all the money that I was making to put toward the tuition. Sure. And I was working in a couple of restaurants here. And then finally, once I had enough and I felt like I could pass the fluency exam, I applied to the school and got in. So the master's was in, taught in Italian. It, it is taught in English, thankfully. Okay. But you um, wanted to, but I wanted baseline. to learn. Yes. If I was going to live there and the, the undergrad program is entirely in Italian, but they choose English maybe for po- problematic reasons, but because it's so international. Uh huh. Um, um, in, in my class, we had, I think, 17 different countries represented and okay. like two dozen students. And at this point, are you still thinking, I mean, you're thinking you want to do food, something in food, probably food writing, mm-hmm. are cookbooks sort of the thing that you're focused on at this point? Yes. You knew that at, at that point. At that point, yeah. I, I ended up writing my master's thesis on um, American cookbooks and okay. the introduction of ebooks and how that changed the market. Okay. Um, so I was, at that point, I knew that was what I wanted to do, but I I really had no idea how to take the first step into it. I kind of figured that the cookbook authors I knew were either chefs at restaurants or um, had been working for a very long time and so had this great knowledge. And I I didn't really know what to do, but we had a three-month period of time where we were meant to do an internship. Sure. And I wrote a letter to Suzanne Goen, who uh-huh. had written what was my favorite cookbook at the time, Sunday Suppers at Luke. Yes. And Suzanne Goen, the LA restaurateur. Yes. Owns Luke and AOC. Exactly. Um, and she, you know, I looked up to her so much and, and I thought that that 
that book was incredible. So I just told her, this is my favorite book and, and I have some time and I'd love, love to come work with you if there's anything I could do. Uh huh. And, um, I'm sure she gets thousands of these kinds of letters, you know? <laughs> right. But by some stroke of luck, she was working on her second cookbook, but nobody knew it wasn't public yet. And for whatever reason, she took a chance on me and said, um, sure, you know, come to LA, let's meet, see if we hit it off. And then at the same time, my best friend happened to get a job in LA. Okay. And she had this little studio apartment and she said, you can stay with me. She's a nurse and she was working the night shift. Uh-huh. So she had this one bed in the studio apartment and I would sleep in the bed at night and <laughs> right. she would come in in the morning and get in the bed and sleep during the day. Right. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> so it was like all these different parts of the universe were, were sort of encouraging me to be in LA. It was kind of an amazing moment. Yeah. So serendipitous. Yes, and completely. What great timing. So what was that process like then for you? You're sort of, you've sort of been working up towards this and all of mm-hmm. a sudden you're working with Suzanne Gowen, who is... Yeah quite well-known name in the food industry and in the cookbook world. And suddenly you're working on a book with her. What was that like? And and how did you sort of develop this process that you then, I think you go on to work with many other Mm -hmm. chefs on Mm -hmm. their books as well? Right. It was, it's kind of crazy that Suzanne set the bar so, so high. Mm -hmm. She, I can't believe that she's the first chef that I got to work with. Like, (laughs) I don't know what, what I did in a past life to deserve that, but (laughs) she, um, you know, talked me through the process and it was great because she had done this Sunday suppers at Luke already. So she kind of knew what worked. Sure. But I had, I had no idea. And so she, she would print out recipes that she had written. And then I would go to her house and in her kitchen, I would cook them. Okay. And she would be in the next room writing. Okay. And at the end of the day, we would sort of sit down, have a bunch of plates in front of us and taste things and talk about, you know, what worked, what I thought was difficult, what didn't really make sense, and then go back and, and change. Now, at this point, you you had this master's. And what is the master's mm-hmm. in? Food, culture, and communications. Okay. So you haven't gone to a professional culinary school. No, never. But you're cooking these recipes that Suzanne Gowen has written, yes. serving them to her. Yeah. What did that feel like? It was, I mean, at first I was so scared and intimidated to cook her recipes for her. Right. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> yes. But I pretty quickly I realized that she has all of the restaurant chef skills. Mm-hmm. She knows, you know, she has ideas about the flavor combinations she wants. And the strength that I brought to the project was my knowledge of cooking at home. Okay. Because yes. that's not something that restaurant chefs do all right. that often. So when I would say to her, you know, maybe we can just use one pot of boiling salted water instead of two, um, sure. she, you know, that would be a great way to make the recipe more suitable for home cooks. Yeah, really imparting some of that wisdom to her. Yeah. What sort of lessons did you yeah. learn from her or maybe some of the other chefs that you've worked with? Oh, so books? much. That's the best part about my job is that with each book, I learn a whole new set of skills. And mm-hmm. and I'm the person who gets to ask a million questions that everybody would ask anyway if, if those recipes were published, you know, the first drafts. Sure. Uh-huh. So like... um I wrote, this is Camino. Right. And it's... Oakland restaurant, which yes, just closed. It does about close. To close? Yeah. Yes, it was very sad. Yes. Um, but they have the kebabery right. now, and I love it there. I go yes, there all the delicious. time. Yeah. But he cooks everything over um, wood fire. Mm-hmm. And so I had never grilled before 
working on that book. So I okay. went and bought a little Weber grill and uh-huh. put it together in our apartment and, um, you know, asked him all the questions about like, okay, what, what kind of charcoal do you use? Why? How do you start it? Um, and then all of that knowledge goes into the book and makes the recipes better. Yeah. And do you think that helps you to sort of not be incredibly professionally trained, maybe like incredibly I do focused on this culinary school sort of mindset? Because you can then sort of work with chefs that are approaching food in such different ways. I do think so. You sort of interpret or you sort of embody their principles in that way. You're sort of a clean slate, maybe coming into the work on their book. Exactly. Yeah. And how did, how does that, um, work for you to sort of go from one chef to another chef Mm -hmm. who approach food so differently, perhaps, Mm -hmm. and sort of instill that into your, your, I assume day to day work life for some period of time? Yeah. It's when I, um, have co-authored books with chefs, the recipes should be written as they would write them. So in their voice. Right. And I have to learn their voice, you know, every which way. I want to know all of their thoughts about everything, not just cooking, but like how they feel about the world. Uh-huh. So I spend a lot of time up front getting to know them, getting to know their friends, family, um, walking their dogs. Sure. And, and then once I have their voice and can write in it, I feel like it's learning another language. Yeah. And so and I kind of, I feel like I have all those voices in my head when I cook now. So if I'm making an herb sauce, I can hear what Russ from Camino would say about it. And I can hear how Jessica Coslow would think about, you know, wanting to add more vinegar to the sauce. Yeah. And it's like all these different languages. Yeah. All the way down to like specific word choice, right? Yes. Yeah. That's so interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. I was really intrigued when I was reading your bio a while back, this word you use, you say you Americanize. Yeah. (laughs) Edit and develop recipes for cookbooks. Can you tell us what you mean by Americanize? Sure. I know it's such a funny word. I've been doing a lot of it recently, actually. Okay. Um, working on a couple projects right now. I didn't come up with the term, and maybe someone knows a better term for it, but when a book is published, say, in the UK. Right. Um, and then an American publishing house wants to publish the book here, all of the recipes and all of the writing has to be, um, converted. Sure. For American audiences. Sure. So the, the most basic one that you, think of right away is that they use metric measurements. Right. So everything's in grams and milliliters. Right. And that all has to be changed to cups and teaspoons and tablespoons. Mm-hmm. But also there are ingredients that like in Britain, they have, you know, several different kinds of cream, which is okay. very civilized. Right. And we only have just the one. <laughs> right. So <laughs> so if a recipe calls for, you know, single cream, then I know, okay, we can try using half and half here. Uh-huh. Um, so I do a lot of testing of recipes to make sure that our flour performs the same way that flour does in, in another country. Yeah. It's Very fascinating. I'm so learning fascinating. so much from it. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Maria Ziska, author of The Newlywed Table. But first, we're checking in with Johnny and Victoria, the cookbook-obsessed couple behind Cooking the Book's blog. Now, this Chicago-based couple launched their cookbook-centric challenge earlier this year, and we knew we had to connect with them to hear what cookbooks they're working from right now and what lessons they've learned while embarking on this new project. So I joined Johnny and Victoria recently to discuss just that. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Victoria. How are you? 
Hey, we're great. How are you? Great. Awesome. I'm so glad we could connect and talk about cookbooks and some of the cookbooks you all have been cooking through. And since it's the first time we're having you here on Salt and Spine, I'd love to just give our listeners a taste of the project you all have been working on. So tell us a little bit about cooking the books and what you've been doing for the past, I think, over a year now, right? It's been six months. Six months. Okay. Wow. Time flies. Yeah. Each week, we choose a different cookbook from our collection because we had a huge collection and we weren't using our cookbooks. So we decided to take a cookbook from our collection and make dishes together. And then we just decided to share the results on Instagram and our blog. Awesome. And you've had great reception, right? I mean, you have thousands of followers now. People are really engaging with your content. Yeah, it's crazy. It just kind of exploded. Yeah, and we're on our 35th book this year. Wow. Um, so we're moving at a pretty pretty good clip. Um, it all started with uh, Jerusalem back in uh, January from uh, Odalengi. Okay, yes. Yeah. One of our one of our guests, one of our friends, Yotam Odalengi. Absolutely. And what have you been cooking through lately then? What books have been on the table the past couple of weeks? We just uh, completed and posted the results of uh, Six Seasons okay. by Joshua McFadden. Great book. I think that uh, we were actually kind of looking through a recap for the year, and that actually made both of our top three, so... Yeah, it is a really great book. Yeah. We also finished Odalengi uh, from uh, Yotam Odalengi and Semi Tamini. Uh, I think that's the, well, it is the only author that we've replicated, you know, two books since we started this project so far. Okay. And he has quite a few. So yeah. easy to, easy to work sure through. They'll them. be featured as well <laughs> in the future, but <laughs> sure. uh, definitely a favorite. And then uh, um, we just started this morning actually um, posting our stuff from Chinese Soul Food. By Cao Ching Chow. Awesome. So what lessons have you learned? You've been doing this six months and you've been sort of immersing yourself in these cookbooks that you've owned, but maybe haven't gotten as much attention or love as you might have hoped. Uh, what, what sort of takeaways have you had through this project so far? Number one, I think that there are some bad recipes that get through. Mm. Um, there's only been a small handful of things that we have made that we're just like, nah, we can't post this. I mean, we follow the recipe and it doesn't turn out. But also as myself, I've learned new cooking techniques like braising chicken before frying it. And it just makes a world of difference. I mean, it's really great because not only are we not eating the same thing every night or falling into eating ruts, but we're gaining so much knowledge. And you're professionally trained. You went to culinary school and you're still picking up techniques from some of these books. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. It's pretty amazing. Um, have you had any favorite recipes from some of these books? I really like the uh, the milk pork from a book called Night Market that we just finished sharing on social media. That that okay. book also was fantastic, and that would definitely be in my top five if I uh, included that. Yeah, and that's a Thai book, right, from the Los yeah, Angeles it is. restaurant? Yeah, it was a really fantastic book. I mean, the techniques are probably a little bit more involved just as far as some of the prep you have to do, but I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily call it like chef-y or anything. No, but, not at all. Uh, Maybe not something you'd consider making on a weeknight, but sure. uh, worth the extra effort for sure. Awesome. For me, I think the uh, fennel cherry tomato crumble gratin from the Adolengi book was a standout. And it was really special because we had just harvested a bunch of cherry tomatoes from our garden. And there's okay. 
nothing more spectacular than a freshly picked tomato. And the dish was like rich without being cloying. And it, it was gorgeous. Yeah, that was a good one. Sounds delicious. What's on the radar? What books are coming up soon? And how can folks plug in to cook along with you? Up next, and this is actually one that we asked our followers to choose between three books. And um, the one that went out was Zuni Cafe. It's kind of like a legendary book. It's a James Beard Award winner. Yeah, we've, we've eaten there. The food was outstanding. So we got Zuni Cookbook by Judy Rogers. Um, we're doing Tex-Mex by Ford Fry. And then... Uh, Gorilla Tacos, which was an interesting one. Um, one thing you should know is that we do work ahead of uh, what you see on social media. So when we start posting something, it's probably a book that we completed three or four weeks ago. Okay. So we always have some stuff on deck. And then there are also a few select books that we kind of work on over a period of weeks. Victoria just finished a baking one that she posted the results of. Another one similar to that was Gorilla Tacos by Wesley Avia, and that we're uh, finishing that up. And the only reason being is because we didn't want to eat tacos for an entire week, as fun as that may sound. Right. (laughs) Uh, Same with the baked goods. Um, So we spread them out over a period of weeks. And then when they're ready, we just post them all at the same time. We just started cooking out of uh, Korean home cooking, which is so great. (laughs) Oh, exciting. And how can people get involved? How can people cook along with you or follow the books that you're cooking through for inspiration? Uh, We're on social media, specifically Instagram and Facebook. Um, Instagram is probably the best place to check out what we're up to. And then uh, we also, if you're local to Chicago, we just started uh, teaching a weekly cookbook class at Fearless Cooking. And we choose a different cookbook each month and feature a dish and everyone comes and participates and cooks and eats and it's a fun time. That sounds yeah. like so much fun. I, I wish I lived in Chicago. I would be there every week. <laughs> well, this was so great. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, Victoria, um, for cooking the books. And we will be checking in with you again, hopefully in a couple weeks and following along on social media and cooking along with you. All right. Sounds great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Remember, you can find a list of nearly a dozen cookbook clubs at saltandspine.com to join in on the fun from your home kitchen. And stay tuned as we check in on some of our favorite cookbook clubs across the country. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Allison Roman, and today's guest, Maria Ziska, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. And I love telling the stories behind cookbooks by sitting down with dozens of your and my favorite cookbook authors. Plus, we publish recipes, author excerpts, hold cookbook giveaways, and so much more. Now, if you love our show, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content. Starting at just $2 a month. You'll have access to lots of perks from Salt and Spine bookmarks to t-shirts to cookbooks and so much more. And you know, this podcast is really only possible because of listeners like you. And I can't thank you enough for listening and for your support. You can find out more on how to join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Maria Zizka, author of The Newlywed Table, a cookbook to start your life together. So when did you decide it was time for your first solo book? Ah. And how did you decide it would be a newlywed book? Well, I was living in New York. Okay. And shortly after Graham and I got engaged, 
I started looking for books that had recipes that two people could cook together. Sure. So I went to the Brooklyn Public Library and I found this whole section of newlywed cookbooks. And I hadn't even really heard of that before then. I didn't know that this was like a little subgenre. Okay. But there are a bunch of them and I started flipping through them and, and I was really disappointed. I felt like there were I mean, there were all these outdated gender norms for one thing. Sure. And then all of the recipes were about cooking for someone else, which is a really lovely thing to do. Right. Of course. But I wanted recipes where you cook with somebody else. Okay. So I talked to my agent on the phone and I was kind of ranting about these books. Right. Like, can you believe that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that this is that way and these tired stereotypes still exist? And, you know, it didn't reflect our reality at all. And, and our friends, like that's, it just seemed like only one specific kind of couple with unlimited resources and unlimited time. And that just was not our lives. Yeah. So I was ranting and, and she is really great. And she said, tell me more. How, you know, if you wrote that book, how would you write it? And, right. and I said, well, I have tons of ideas. I, I would do this and that. And, and she said, okay, send me an email tonight with a little paragraph that is, you know, what we just talked about. And that little paragraph grew into the full book proposal that became The Newlywed Table. Wow. Isn't that so fascinating how like this book can just come from that little spark at the just library? That moment. I know. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, and newlywed cookbooks of the, mm-hmm. the dated kind that you're referencing mm-hmm. used to be like a relatively significant genre, right? Like, I yes. Think yeah. Decades ago. That was sort of a real thing that people really expected and wanted when they got married. Absolutely. Yes. It was a common wedding gift. Uh Um, and, and that was part of what got me really worked up too, is that all of these couples were receiving this book as a wedding gift and it might be their first cookbook that they are cooking from. And, and I just didn't want it to be, you know, where a woman has to cook for a man. That was not what I wanted to, to have spread. So I, thought a lot about that when I was writing The Newlywed Table and and how I wanted to just update it for the 21st century and have it be this really modern book that worked for couples of all kinds. Sure. And what sort of factors were you thinking about when you were putting this book together? I mean, it's not just recipes that serve two either. It's, no. There's recipes to have, you know, a dinner party. Friends to have over, friends yeah. Over, yeah. What sort of things did you want to make sure were encapsulated in this book for newlyweds? That's a great question. Well, I, I started by thinking about the kinds of recipes that are easier to make and more fun to make with somebody else. Okay. So um, think of like, you know, have you ever made aioli and you have, you know, the bowl uh-huh. with the egg yolk and then you're whisking in olive oil drop by drop right. by drop. Right. And, and so one hand is whisking, one hand's holding the bowl and then you need another hand to pour right. the oil. Yes. Um, so that. Or the little like wet towel trick <laughs> or, to hold yes. the bowl in place. <laughs> a very good <laughs> if trick. If you don't have another hand, yes. But yeah, if you have another hand, right. bring them in. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was, you know, things like that. Or I find that when I, um, you know, am salting and peppering, um, a cut of meat mm-hmm. that I feel like I go and wash my hands like five times because right. I salt and then I have to flip the meat over and then I have to go wash my hands again. Right. So that's another thing that's really helpful to have somebody else with you in the kitchen to yeah. do. And so it's kind of started with these core, I guess their techniques really or, or sure. principles and recipes. And then from there, it kind of built out so that the beginning of the book starts with 
if you were just learning how to cook. These are could be great basic recipes that you would start with for busy weeknights, okay. just the two of you. Yeah. And then as you become more confident cooking together and you feel like you're working together as a team well, then you start having friends over and the recipes in the middle of the book serve more six to eight, for right. example. And then there's this kind of arc where at the end of the book, there are recipes that you would make together that are like kitchen projects sure. for a long weekend, like a batch of jam right. or, um, you know, preserved lemons or homemade bitters, right. things that just the two of you would, would work on together. Yeah. And your husband, Graham, designed yes, the book he as did. well. So this is really a collaborative project <laughs> yes, between the two of you the theme. in so many ways. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if there's things you learned about cooking together as a couple while mm -hmm. you were making this book that you hadn't really realized before mm -hmm. working on this project. Oh, so much. Okay. Yeah. And I, I really wanted, it was important to me that, um, you know how a lot of cookbooks are really personal where you learn about the author's family and you learn about them specifically. Sure. Because of the nature of this book, I really wanted people to see themselves in the recipes. Okay. And to kind of take them on into their own lives. Okay. So I was really careful not to put too much of Graham and my cooking in it. You know, like I yep. didn't want to, no one cares what Graham's favorite, you know, sweet dessert is. <laughs> I wanted people to find their favorite okay. dessert. Yes. When I was creating the recipes, I, I really tried to put in kind of a whole range of different things that people could take and then make their own. Right. That's so interesting. How has your recipe testing process changed over time? You've worked mm. on, how many books have you worked on that are not your own? A dozen? Uh, yeah, I think just over like a dozen. Okay. Yeah. And, that, and then now your first solo book. Right. How has that changed for you, the process of actually coming up with a recipe? I know some of these recipes are recipes that you've had in your repertoire for yes. a while, like either from your childhood or even I think some came from that time in college when you and yeah. Graham were writing this yeah. column together. And some are probably new. How did that process sort of change for you over your career? Yeah, well, it's with every project, I learn new things. And so I feel like I'm always adding to my collection of recipes and always finding inspiration in other places. One of the really interesting things about my first solo book was that I didn't want to be the only one doing the recipe testing. Sure. Which is what I had done, you know, for Suzanne before and on other books. But now that the recipes were my own, I knew that somebody else had to test them. Yes. Yeah. It was important to me that the recipes really worked. Right. So we put together a testing team. Um, and that was funny. I, I put actually on Instagram, just made a post that said, you know, would anybody be interested in testing some recipes from, uh -huh. from the book? And I really thought, like three or four people would say, Oh, like maybe sure. <laughs> if you, yeah. if you really convince me. <laughs> right. Um, and we had over a hundred people wow. all over the world wow. sign up. Um, and they were so enthusiastic. So we started calling them the testing team. Okay. And, um, and Graham was a really big help with this part too, because once I had a hundred people, I wanted to know, I, I sent out this questionnaire and I asked them, you know, how much can you spend on ingredients? Are there any foods you don't eat? And this is a volunteer. Basis. Totally volunteer. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to make sure that they were, you know, it was going to be fun for them. Right. And within their budget. Sure. So, um, so then when all that information came back, I had like way too much, you know, I, I sat down and I had the list of recipes 
and I was flipping through like, okay, Nina needs a gluten-free right. sweet. And I tried to pair testers with recipes yes. and it was taking years. Yes. Sounds daunting. <laughs> and then, but then Graham said, I have an idea. And he wrote this um, script on his computer okay. that took in all of that tester questionnaire data uh-huh. and all the information that I had given about the recipes, like this one probably costs this much, this one's gluten-free, this one's right. vegan. And it paired testers with recipes in like three seconds. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so that was hugely helpful. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Are there specific authors or cookbooks who have been particularly influential to you, either mm-hmm. as you were teaching yourself to cook or as mm-hmm. you were that you turned to professionally, you know, to to sort of model um, as you're writing books of your own? Oh my gosh, so many, to, too many to name. I sure. love um, Judy Rogers, mm-hmm. Edna the Lewis, yes. yes, Alice Waters, Deborah Madison. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are so, so many. And I, I love to look at how each of them writes. And I, I can, you know, they each have their own voice. And so just picking up and flipping through the Zuni Cafe cookbook, it's like I learn something new every single time. And I yeah. feel like I've read it a hundred times, yes. but there's still new information in it. Yeah. It's such a great book. Yeah. You, I also read you have a habit of flipping to the back of a cookbook when yes. you pick it up to the acknowledgement section, which I will admit is something I do too, mostly <laughs> because I'm always, I'm always curious yep. about an author's inspiration. I'm mm-hmm. always looking for what guided them as they were producing this cookbook. Mm-hmm. Why do you turn to the back of the book? It's my little trick. Okay. I in, It's the first thing I do before I even look at the table of contents. I read the acknowledgments uh-huh. because I think you can learn so much from them. You really can. You can right away, you know, who was part of the team that made that book because it's never just one person. Yeah. It's a huge team of editors and designers and photographers and if the acknowledgments mention, you know, writers and, and recipe testers, then that is a really good sign that the recipes are probably going to work well for you. Right. But if there's no mention of that, then, then I'll probably put the book back on the shelf. Right. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So you just published this book, The Newlywed Table, um, for newlywed couples. Mm-hmm. It's 2019. Yes. The internet is like ripe with recipes. What role do you think cookbooks still play today? I know a lot of young people. Nah, now I'm sounding like I don't know, <laughs> young people, right? But but a lot of people You're turn young. to the internet yeah. these days for recipes. Yeah. And what role do you think cookbooks play in, in our society and in our culture today? Yeah, it's so interesting because of all printed books, cookbooks continue to sell really right? well. Mm-hmm. And um that this is what I, I wrote my thesis on. So I feel like I could talk to you forever <laughs> yes. about this, but we'll do a follow up episode <laughs> yeah. sometime. Yeah. <laughs> but there is something, there's something about them that people find, you know, compelling. Yeah. That's more compelling than an online recipe. Otherwise they would just die out. Um, and I think that online recipes are getting better and better, but the rigor that cookbooks have, you know, that those recipes I created them, then they were tested by five different people. Sure. They were edited by my editor, Judy Prey, and then copy edited by another person. And, and then there was a proofreader right. and a typesetter and, and all of these kind of checks that I think make the recipes as bulletproof as they could be. Yeah. Whereas online, that's true for some publications, definitely. But you could, anybody could just put any recipe online. Right. And so it's hard to know which ones to trust. Yeah. 
That's so true. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would um, steal some inspiration from the newlywed table. Oh, good. And I have some cards in front of you. There's different categories, proteins, mm. vegetables, flavors. Blue is the secret ingredient, and those are more challenging okay. items. <laughs> um, but I'm going to give you an event, like a, a, a theme, what, okay. what you're preparing a dish for. And you can draw as many of these cards as you want, but then I want you to come up with a, a dish that you would make to fit that theme. Oh, okay. So, for fun. instance, our first one is going to be newlywed couple. It's a Monday night. Monday night date night. We want to do something special on Monday night, make a nice meal, Mm -hmm. and we're going to use these ingredients. So however many you want to draw. Okay, let's see. Maybe we need a protein. (laughs) Goat. (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Goat and lamb. Okay. (laughs) Um, We'll take a secret ingredient too. Oh, Oh, sumac. sumac. This is now looking to me like a very grillable Monday night date night. (laughs) Probably we need a vegetable too cauliflower okay okay i like this i I, I feel like you could do something here (laughs) yeah so what do we make well i would probably do because it's a monday and you know you have to work tomorrow morning you don't have a lot of time so i would probably do like a quick marinade with sumac salt and pepper and olive oil okay just really basic but flavorful and then fire up the grill and cook the the meat pretty hot yeah. And and then, you know, have it still be medium rare, rare sure. in the middle. And with the cauliflower, I actually love cauliflower cooked over really, really high heat too. Yes. Um, there's a recipe in the newlywed table for a whole cauliflower. Uh-huh. And I figured out, you know how sometimes you'll put olive oil on to kind of um give it give some fat and some flavor? Sure. Well, I started putting pancetta on like draped over the top of yes. the cauliflower. Okay. And then when you roast it, the pancetta crisps up and all of the the flavorful fat drips into the cauliflower. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. So that I would probably really make that too. Okay. That sounds like a great Monday night meal. Um, okay, let's do another. Okay. So it's your first brunch with the in-laws. They're coming Ooh. over, you're newlyweds, and you are gonna prep something for the in-laws. You're a little nervous. A little nervous, yes. <laughs> what do we have to work with? Mm, okay, let's see. We'll take another secret ingredient. Ooh, oh, dragon, dragon fruit. fruit. Okay. <laughs> okay, so maybe it's like kind of brunch-y. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Oregano. Interesting. <laughs> Steak. Oh. Some more. Okay. This has been a meat. This is a meat heavy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pickles. I'm going to take one oh, more wow. secret ingredient. Okay. Oh, sausages. Okay. Cotecchio sausages. A large Italian pork sausage. Okay. <laughs> All right. So br- brunch is coming this up. Is hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think dragon fruit um, would be a really great thing to cook, actually, for the first time you're meeting your in-laws because yeah. you know that starts all kinds of conversations. You can make a really nice fruit salad. We've been making sure. um, fruit salads with honey and lime mixed together okay. as like a dressing. Yes. And um, and I think, you know, you could start asking your in-laws about if they've ever had dragon fruit, if they've ever traveled anywhere, where right. that would start all kinds of good 
conversations. Yeah, I think so. Yes. <laughs> and you could certainly make like a breakfast sausage. You could crumble that with some oregano, mm. um, cook it in a pan, uh-huh. plus some eggs. Uh-huh. Can't go wrong making eggs. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sort of a traditional <laughs> breakfast plate. Yeah, yeah. With a big fruit salad. Yeah. I like it. it sounds delicious. <laughs> okay. How about your first Thanksgiving? Oh. Um, hosting people for the first time. What are we making? Well, the question is, are the people who are coming, you know, do they want to stick to the classics? I think that's up to you to decide (laughs) (laughs) once we see what we're working with here. (laughs) Well, well, okay, kale. Kale, okay. That's pretty classic. I mean, maybe in California. Right. (laughs) Kale and onion, excellent. Bell pepper. Okay. And we'll probably need a protein. Shrimp. Ooh, okay. Mm. Oh. Not a classic at my Thanksgiving table. No. But it could be. But could be fantastic. You could make like a big, um, you know, if you're not going to do a roast turkey, uh-huh. then I would say you should have some kind of big centerpiece sure. that people can ooh and awe over. Um, and with shrimp, you could do like a big seafood stew. Yeah. And with some white wine and maybe a little cream. And I think the kale would be fantastic in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if you were to have other seafood, you could add like mussels and right. um, clams. Right. And then and then I think since it's probably good to have both modern and traditional, you could do a uh, you could do like um kind of a stuffing with the onion okay. and, and bell pepper that sort of you know something that went into the oven maybe with bread big breadcrumbs and had right. like a crunchy top. I love that idea. So it's a, a warm soup. So yeah. it's still, if it's cold out at Thanksgiving, wherever you are, it's still sort of warm and comforting. Yeah. A pescatarian Thanksgiving. Pescatarian. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, this was so much fun, Maria. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you for having me. What an honor. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from the newlywed table, the braised chicken legs with green olives and lime gremolata, and the summer on a plate salad. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Johnny and Victoria from Cooking the Books, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 
Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.